Finland and Sweden plan to join NATO as soon as possible, but how will this move be received by Russia? With the latest on the war in Ukraine, we are joined by Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning to you. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for being here. Well, if Finland and Sweden join NATO, what would we expect from the Russian response? What do you expect? Yeah, well, we've we've gotten uh, the initial response. It's uh, it's certainly irritant. Um, so Medvedev, the former uh, president of Russia, has said that basically Russia will now, when they review their targeting, their nuclear targeting, uh, they will now include uh, Finland and Sweden if they become part of NATO. It's just a sort of routine targeting thing. Um, this is not this is background sort of noise stuff. I mean, right now we've got the major offensive in the Donbass starting today, so I think all eyes are on that. The the NATO, the, the Finnish and Swedish accessions to NATO, I think really they will start to come into more into the new side in June, around the time of the NATO summit in Madrid. So because this will take a little bit of time, although NATO has said they will fast track them, but that means like June right, as the summit. So for now. It's a backgrounder story. Uh, I don't think it'll change the equation much as well. As well. This whole Ukrainian situation has really changed the, uh, the Russian political calculus in the sense that I think they're, they're giving up ideas of the larger sort of Russian sphere of influence, including all Ukraine. And this whole war now is shifted onto the Donbass. And I think the Russians are kind of pulling back their political objectives to a consolidating a buffer in eastern Ukraine and, of course, in keeping uh, Crimea. Also, politically speaking, the Russians have really hardened. They are now in their... They're really focused on their conservative Eurasian perspective. The Russians divide politically between the Western sort of liberal-orientated Russian people uh, and then our hardline conservative people and including the russian orthodox church and that's now these are the this is where the focus is in russia so i think they're kind of like giving up on the west yeah andrew before i want to get more into that the donbass region why it's so important and, and why this is such a big target but i just want to step back to even any discussion about nuclear or use of nuclear weaponry do we even think that that's a, a possibility when it comes to russia's invasion of ukraine now, it is a possibility, not a likelihood, but it is a possibility. It cannot be taken off the table, and it's extremely serious. What we're talking here is weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction have only been used two times uh, in World War II, Nagasaki, Hiroshima. And, never, and that was when only one country in the world had nuclear weapons or atomic weapons back then. We are in a totally different situation here with the United States, of course, and the Russians both have the capability to destroy the planet numerous times over under mutual assured destruction. Use of even low-yield tactical nuclear weapons, which has been speculated in the press about the Russians using it somewhere in Ukraine, it brings the matter to a, a level that we've never been at before, historically speaking. And I really, this would be, it's very difficult to speculate, but I would suggest to you that really this becomes a very serious matter that will be handled by the United States and Russia, because they are the two superpowers. And it's really, it's a dimension that we, we can't, we can't accurately discuss, really. Let's break down and go back to the Donbass region and why you mentioned the focus is shifting for the Russians. Why is this region so important strategically and politically? 
So it's the coal mining area. Uh, it has a lot of value. So Ukraine is is is, uh, is a very rich country uh, in terms of its geography. It's a, it's a breadbasket. It's got it's got excellent arable land, uh, and it also has uh, uh, this this coal mining uh, this coal area in the in the eastern section. The eastern section is uh, also historically the Russian section, the Russian speaking section of Ukraine. So this is where there of all the sympathies uh, of of Ukrainians toward Russians, this is where it's at, and this is where the republics the first rebellion against the Maidan revolt in 2014 took place here. Um, so. For the Russians now, that, that they realize they cannot, uh, since their first phase of the war failed, to take all of Ukraine, uh, they are now focusing on the second best option, if you will. They need a victory of some sort. So they'll take this hardcore, traditionally Russian-type area of Ukraine, and and uh, basically what they expect to do is, is uh, destroy, well, defeat the Ukrainian forces there, complete the land bridge in the south when they take Mariupol, and I think that's just a question of time. And then they can take, they can say this is victory. And on May 9th, if, they, if the timetables meet, uh, they will declare that the war has come to an end. And I've been talking to you about diplomacy before. Well, I'm not sure there's going to be much of a diplomatic solution here. I think it's just going to be a ceasefire and an armistice because both sides now are so entrenched against each other that it's hard for me now to speculate, well, and make a deal this, they'll do that. Mm-hmm. I think it's just kind of like going to stop fighting at some point where they can't do any more, and that'll be that. Andrew, why do we describe this as a new phase of the war? Why is it being called that? Well, because the, the first phase was, in from a Russian point of view, was they had a maximalist view of Ukraine. That is a neutral, a neutral Ukraine, uh, a, a Ukraine that recognized Crimea, uh, you know, as being Russia. And there was all those sort of broad issues that they were kind of soft diplomatic objectives that they were going for assuming that they had been able to to essentially remove Zelensky or at least push Zelensky into a corner where he would negotiate favorably from a Russian perspective. And about two weeks ago, we were almost there uh, when they had the meetings in Istanbul. And then, of course, that, that next weekend, we had the discovery of the massacres of civilians. We had the sinking of the Russian cruiser Moskva. It changed a lot of things. And the Russians also realized they don't have the military strength to take all Ukraine in a pitched battle. They thought they could do it through a special forces operation. Failed. So now they're going to a very traditional World War II, time-proven thing, a bunch of Russian numbers against quality Ukrainian forces, and they'll try to overwhelm them. And they'll take a limited but defined objective. And, and the Donbass is a definable objective, as well as the land bridge to Crimea. These are definable objectives. I believe they will try and take them with their numbers of forces and then, and then basically call for a ceasefire. Just before we let you go quickly... Almost two months into it, are you surprised that we're two months into this conflict when people thought it would take days or weeks to complete the Russian mission that they came into Ukraine for? You have me on record saying how surprised I am. I've been wrong all the way through. I appreciate you still talking to me. I mean, no one, maybe a few people calculated it. I didn't think there would be the war. I thought we were going to go to the diplomatic solution, as I've said on your show. Once the war started, I thought there would be a, a diplomatic pathway even to resolve that. It has gone completely outside the box, certainly of how I thought, but other analysts also have been wrong on this one. Um, so we've been tracking it. Now, there is, there is a very famous saying by Clausewitz, the philosopher of war, that while war, uh, war is about politics, but war has a grammar of its own. 
And this is what defines war moves things in ways that is unpredictable for anyone. Andrew, thank you so much for your time this morning. We always love your perspective. I think you're right. A lot of people having trouble getting this one right, but I don't think anyone can predict Putin, and that's the problem. Thank you for joining us. (laughs) Thank you. Anytime. Appreciate it. Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs.